Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss the various forms of house in the 1990s, Deep House, Handbag House, Progressive House, and French Touch. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm back with my co-host, Ryan Harkness, to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. Except this week, I feel like our faithful guide might have let us down, and he admits it in the foreword. But, Ryan, I feel like Dante bitching about Virgil here in the Inferno, but he has kind of left us alone in the darkness in this case, has he not? Uh, Well, you know, this is the outro chapter, and... This is us back in the outro chapter for a second episode, and I think we're actually going to be here for a third with Speed Garage. So at this point, we have to admit that we've somewhat strayed from what Simon Reynolds was doing with his chapter, which was illustrating how dance music in general went from being this like, you know, a monolith of techno and a monolith of house to just an endless parade of subgenres and, and and that's kind of that was that was the the thesis of the outro chapter, which was just that we were no longer moving forward with uh, with one coherent story for for each of those there was there was a hundred to tell now you know tw- what is it 20 22 24 years later we we all of these genres we feel and i think rightfully so that they all deserve to be spoken of and and discussed thoroughly so that's you know that's where hindsight comes in so no no blame on on what simon reynolds was doing his his outro chapter i think was for for the original version from 1998 very serviceable it's just that now obviously uh there there's more context to the to the genres he was talking about and we just got to talk about them Exactly. But where the blind spot comes in and the admitted failing was he didn't like so-called progressive house. It had that word progressive, just like he doesn't like the word intelligent. Those are red flags for Mr. Reynolds. Well, and I, I don't I don't like progressive house either. I don't like progressive <laughs> at all. <laughs> I actually enjoyed this stuff. I, I just I went to town on this this stuff, uh, partly because I knew I wasn't supposed to like it. Um, but the reality is. This is something we probably should have covered around 91, 92 when we were talking about hardcore. This was kind of one of the rivals to hardcore. And he admits this that House and its offshoots were the most prevalent, most popular form of EDM in Britain during that big, big explosion in 92 to 94, um, 91, 93, probably that era. So we've got to go back in time a little bit and talk about basically trying to cover the whole history of House in the 90s. Um, and so apologies for those of you on an obsessive timeline should have done this a few chapters ago, but, um, you know, be that it is may. Yeah. We're following the book sort of. Yeah. More or less. This is just one of those, you know, we did the same thing with Brewster and Broughton. 
had to fill in a couple of blind spots. And even with them, I feel like we probably should have gone back and done a whole chapter on Rare Groove um, that we didn't do. But be that as may, here we are. We're talking about House. And if you're going to talk about House, you got to at least pay a visit to Chicago. And Chicago, even though the scene had was not what it was at all in the 80s. The radio stations were gone. The clubs had been under, under siege, a two-pronged siege from the police and the legal authorities and from the underworld. Um, nonetheless, there's at least one hero in Chicago House in this era, and I'm talking about Curtis Allen Jones, the inimitable Green Velvet, a.k.a. Casual. Cashmere um, as well. Cashmere, yes. Many, a, man, pre, a man of many aliases. Um Give us a quick summary of Green Velvet, who's one of my absolute favorites, I have to say. Uh, Green Velvet's one of those interesting guys that that really straddled house and techno and, and revitalized both, I feel. And, uh, you know, he had, he had different names for different sounds, which is, I think, the way that everybody was kind of going in the 90s. And I dug that. Uh, we talked about Green Velvet uh, when we were talking about uh, Dark Side House a little bit because he had tracks like Flash and... Uh, uh, and there's there's a couple a couple others that that he had. That I can't feel very, my body. Yeah, yeah, that one as well. There's, there's a whole bunch. He 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 was like kind of the the North American pioneer of of talking about creepy things and house tracks and and really giving it a sinister vibe. So his his contributions to house and techno was kind of making them uh, dark and sleazier than than maybe was considered appropriate before. But the other thing that that Reynolds left out, I mean. I feel like Green Velvet had to be talked about in the Dark Core chapter because he was making such a big impact. But he's also funny as hell. And a lot of those songs like Percolator or Answering Machine uh, didn't fit with the Dark Core theme because they're just so hilarious. I mean, it's rare to get a first person narrator telling stories where the punchline's kind of on the, the jokes on them, you know, and, and that. That humor of Green Velvet, I mean, not only is he an African-American, so, you know, the flag is is raised. He's from Chicago. He's keeping the tradition alive. He's also keeping the techno tradition alive. But he's funny as shit, which is way, way underserved in this whole genre. I mean, the total opposite of the po-faced troops we're going to be talking about in a minute. Yeah, Dark Side in general, I've always found, is taken a bit too seriously by the scholars. It was all kind of a joke uh, even even to the people inside of it, you know, from hardcore into house and everything else like that, we were all kind of giggling the whole way through. <laughs> a lot like original heavy metal, you know. I mean, there's a big difference between Venom and like what came later in Norway, et cetera, et cetera. But let's get back to to house. So, um, Curtis Allen Jones, he's got multiple label. He's got his own labels in Chicago. He's got the Relief label, the Casual label. Puts out artists like Green Ferris, DJ Sneak, um, DJ Rush. Uh, as Reynolds says, they thrillingly revive the spirit, if not the sound, of Acid House. So that that whole vibe of young African Americans doing stuff on really limited budgets and just killing it and being on cutting edge, um, you know, he kind of epitomizes that and kept that tradition going into the 90s, which, you know, the heyday of that was in the 80s, obviously. And it wasn't just him. And it wasn't just out of Chicago. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming out of New Jersey. Um, and still, and, and Detroit's obviously its own whole topic that we've addressed already. But you've got people like Masters at Work, Deep Dish, Armin Van Helden, Todd Edwards, Merck. Um, all those guys are important. Want to give us a quick summary on 
why or some highlights on that list? Yeah, well, it all kind of falls into that deep house label. And that's like it's a slower, sparser and more soulful sound than, than, than traditional house. Like the piano is still there. The sax may still be there, but it's more sparingly used. They're spatially used. There's dark elements and tech elements that have been added in. It kind of gets away from 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 being as joyously disco based as maybe past house has been. And the cool thing about it is it, it uses more unconventional jazz chords, which explains why good deep house tracks are just, they feel different. They're moodier and they feel more complex and less derivative. So all of these guys are coming out with stuff that's starting to sound like, once again, more underground and a bit more sophisticated than than maybe the uh, the more obvious house music of the late 80s. But at the same time, there's a whole another wave of creators that are doing stuff that's in the house tradition, but very much the opposite. So much so that it gets with emphasis on anthemic charts, anthemic courses, chart penetrating house tunes, and it gets dissed. It's called handbag house, and and Reynolds says it was um, disregarded for allegedly appealing to women and the folk myth construct of Sharon and Tracy, the stereotypes of the undiscriminating working class party girl. Um, but still you had tracks like What Are We Doing by Dee Dee Simone, uh, Black Box, Right on Time, C.C. Peniston, Robin S. Show Me Love. Yeah, these Ultimate. are real anthems that like, you know, I when we were picking picking a song, I was like, do I pick the ones that everybody's heard? Like these are these are such core songs that everybody's heard like handbag handbag is the derogatory term if you really want to pinpoint the genre that spawned handbag hate it's diva house which is kind of like a the baby of of disco and and euro because it's just got that 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 full-on diva vocal and but the the banging that you would get from like a two unlimited track so it's a very interesting in your face full forward and handbag comes from the fact that women in, in clubs in the UK would quite sensibly, they dance around their handbags. They put their, their purses on the ground and then dance around them so that they wouldn't get their, their, their purses stolen. So handbag kind of just became like that out on the dance floor, dancing to this stuff with their handbag down on the ground between them. And that's just kind of the, the shit talking that people use to, to denigrate these, these working class women who are just ha- trying to have a good time. Yeah, back in the '90s, it was it was open season for sexist rock, uh, music critics to just go to town, and sexist musicians and music fans who wanted to talk up their boy stuff and just the girl stuff. But you went a different direction. You chose Cashmere, Believe in Me from 1992. What yeah, that was my deep house selection. Like uh, hopping back to the deep house stuff, I wanted to to pick Cashmere, which is one of Green Velvet's uh, aliases to kind of show people where he sat in that kind of slower, groovier, weirder house sound. Well, let's hear it. Cashmere, believe in me. You need a man who will be there for you. I'll be there for you. Need a man who will take you out to nice places. I'll be there, baby. Or do you need a man to lick you up and down? And that was Cashmere with Believe in Me. And we do, we do, Green Velvet. We love you, we love you, we believe in you uh, till the end of time. I mean, this this is, 
I'll never be able to go back in time and appreciate it as it happened. I slept on it, but I'm so happy that I discovered. Uh, I feel Alan like you Jones. might actually go if Green Velvet came to your neck of the woods. You might actually go out and check it out. I mean, maybe I, you know, he's I, my, just as good, man. He is not. He has not let up one bit. Well, maybe if once I get over my COVID, you know, the whole <laughs> the plague business. But I've I've long said that Jesus could get back together with all the apostles, including Judas, and I wouldn't buy a ticket. So we'll see. We'll see if Green, Green Velvet can tempt me out of that. And there's also a reaction. Or I don't know a reaction, but a, sort of a combinatory mini genre that comes around this era. Uh, called Hardbag House. And a guy, uh, Rollo Armstrong, a faithless, was involved in this. There's a track, Don't You Want Me by Felix. That was kind of the summary of that. Tell us about Hardbag House. Yeah, Hardbag is when like the Euro elements overpowered the diva elements in Handbag. So like the synth started to take center stage and there was nothing subtle about these leads. Like the key elements of, of handbag and hardbag is they're not afraid to be overt in your face with the core melody or the groove or the vocal riff. The drums just kept getting harder too until it crossed the line right into UK hardhouse and new energy, which is kind of like the hard hardcoreification of handbag music. Um, so, you know, it, it's just the, you know, like any genre of music that, that kind of catches on, it's just going to, someone's going to take it and, and, and kind of amp it up and, and make it harder and harder, especially in the UK, they love to do that. So, so Hardbag was the, the successor to Handbag, and then it went full into New Energy and UK Hardhouse, which, you know, spawned their own 50 different uh, underground subgenres as well. And new energy, of course, is sort of a descendant of high energy, the early 80s disco sound. Uh, yeah, high energy and hardbag, you know, they kind of sit in a, and handbag in general. Like they all they all sit together in a, a, as weird sisters. Yeah, very much the disco family. And one thing we should point out, most of these vocals were samples or snippets. They weren't having – it wasn't like Sylvester or Divine recording a whole track. It was generally uh, frequently just snippets. There were a few vocalists that did, did whole tracks, but – very manipulated, very much of the of the '90s. So it's not yeah. Black you... Box got into big trouble because they were constantly stealing snippets, and uh, like you, you can thank Black Box for a whole bunch of the the weird laws that we have about sampling because they basically they they were kind of like I'm trying to think of a they they were the ones that broke the law so bad that new laws were written. They were taken into account because of everything they were doing. Yep. And, and uh, you know, there you go. And this, the whole sampling laws is, is a pet peeve, but we'll avoid that for now. But, yeah, those those guys uh, were pushing it just like kind of Bismarcky was pushing it uh, with his uncleared sample that got the hip-hop party kind of killed. And there's one other little genre. I don't even know if it's a genre. He doesn't quite have a name for it. But Reynolds gives a shout-out to a bastard form of acid from the squats, meaning the, the buildings where people are squatting, living illegally – um, the uh, compilation mixed by the DJ Collective Liberator, and I love this title. It was called "It's Not Intelligent, It's Not from Detroit, But It's Fucking Having It." Um, and you know, so that one, if you can track that one down, I found that on, I think I found it on Mixcloud. But that's a fun compilation. And yeah, ketamine this, was the big drug. Yeah, this is this is the uh, acid techno as, as a subgenre, and that ah. you know uh, the roots of acid techno. It doesn't come from 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 the hard bag scene or anything like that. They're more from the spiral tribe technoval scene, uh, and and they kind of started up. They picked up influence from Detroit techno from the underground resistance, and uh, then they went full on you know hardcore techno, slowed it down, put the acid three or three back into it, and it was the Liberator brothers, so like the Liberator crew. 
uh, is a couple of different guys who all picked uh, a liberator DJ name, kind of like the Hard Kiss Brothers did in in uh, San Francisco. And they started the Stay Up Forever Collective, which was a series of labels uh, to make, play, and promote acid techno sounds. And, uh, you know, these labels, Hydraulics, Smitten, Cluster, they all single-handedly, like, plotted the course for the sound of acid techno for, like, 10 years. Like, acid techno means a lot of things now, but, like, from basically, like, 94 to, like, 2005, like, everything under that Stay Up Forever Collective uh, ran acid techno and it's all that super aggressive growling 303, uh, chug a chug techno. It's, it's some of my favorite stuff. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we had you on the show to tell us about it. Cause Reynolds didn't even know the name of the genre yet at this point. So I'm filling in some holes in my knowledge and speaking of holes in knowledge because of the way Reynolds just skipped over this whole thing. And I had been oblivious deliberately oblivious to this stuff like the few times i did want to go out and dance i just wanted to get messed up and watch girls dance basically i was not concerned with what are these tracks where does this come from how is this made i was just enjoying the experience which i like to think is a totally valid thing to do and when i heard this when i finally went back and and reconstructed the history of progressive house which reynolds didn't do for us now I'm like, aha, that's I've recognized this stuff. This is the kind of stuff that people were dancing to um, in the mid 90s all over the place. And groups like Underworld, I almost tried to squeeze them into Big Beat. So I'm very happy that I didn't do that. And and we did this because there's this whole, I don't know. Tell us about the genesis of the progressive house movement. Who were they and what were they trying to do? Yeah, well, progressive is such a messy term because it's used basically as a catch all for a type of club dance music that was popular from like 95 to 2005. Basically, it's slower than rave, less in your face than rave, cooler. And if electronic music was a water park, then, you know, it's the lazy river compared to hardcore water slides and trance wave pools. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say it again. Full disclosure, I hate progressive because that was what was popular in the club world when I was raving. And that's all I had in my town. If I went to a club, they were playing prog. And as a trance DJ, I got started DJing because all the so-called trance in the city was progressive. So the thing I hate about prog is that, you know, for all the confusion about what is or isn't prog, I think everybody knows what bad progressive house and bad progressive trance sounds like, but the good stuff, uh, people are always like, what is it? What genre do you put it in? Because it actually has substance and it has elements of trance or house or garage. So you're tempted to classify it as one of those, but it doesn't quite fit because it actually progressive is just devoid of personality. Progressive is just the wrapper that things got put in in order to fit into the club sound that was being played everywhere. And any, anything that's actually good, starts you start saying well this is kind of like trance or this is actually more house so to me progressive is more of 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 kind of it's it's basically how they say edm now in america it's a specific big room sound that's popular and everybody's making it according to these formulations so i see so it's like reynolds dissed it ignored it and you're dissing it so i'm gonna have to feebly try to fight for my corner but let's go ahead and hear our next tune which um is Black Box Ride on Time, which I should have I should have introduced this a second ago. This is from 1990. Tell us why you picked it. Uh, well, we're going back to the uh, to the handbag. If you want to know, I'm botching every cue exactly. today, so apologies. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, handbag is. If you want to know like what handbag is, there you go. That's handbag. Diva Diva House. Black Box Ride on Time. Oh, 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 oh
And that was Black Box right on time, all the way back to 1990. Um, but we will have a couple samples of Progressive. I've, I've forced Ryan's hand, so I uh, so look forward to that. But let's get back to um, Reynolds kind of calls it band house, like in, in one of the few mentions he makes of this stuff. He, he references the groups Left Field, Lion Rock, Underworld, The Aloof, and Faithless. They sold albums in big numbers, and they did live. They tended to be live acts, much like Orb and Orbital and KLF. Um, they played live, just like the Prodigy we talked about last time, where they and the Chemical Brothers, they put on a show. They weren't just faceless white label records um, or DJs that you know did DJ sets. They were acts. They were art artists. Um, Reynolds says that. Well, I, I think I got this from Wikipedia. Actually, that's how deep I'm going. But. Progressive House was known for long tracks, big riffs, mild dub inflections, and multi-tiered percussion. And RecordingArts.com says the four on the floor and punch drums are constant with a very deep bass, synth lead that carries the track. Added in are many layers of filtered, evolving pads, white noise risers, and riffs that come and go as the tune grows, building up to a climax. The use of risers, white noise, and filters are very prevalent since the transitions and breakdowns make a big part of dividing the arrangements by sections. What's a riser, Ryan? Tell me what is a riser. Well, a riser is like if you've got that like white noise hiss and then it slowly goes up in, in frequency. Uh, it gives you it gives you like that kind of euphoric rushing feeling. So anytime you got like kind of a kind of a, a synth sound or, a, or or kind of a tone or something like that that just like slowly build that that builds up in frequency, that'll be a riser. And thank you very much. And Reynolds wants to point out uh, that the term progressive seemed to imply not just anti-cheese, non-girly credentials, but also a severing of houses' roots and gay black disco. This is very much the story of white British lads taking over a, a black American form. It happens over and over again. This is like sort of the Beatles and the Stones of the 90s, except they're not the Beatles and Stones of the 90s, but, but they have that in common of the... And erasure is kind of a harsh term. I don't feel like these people were especially racist, and they were certainly they weren't preventing black artists from being played or anything. But they were. Definitely yeah, it wasn't a conscious thing they were trying. It wasn't a conscious thing they were trying to do no. to remove all uh, remove all the funk or whatever. You know, as, as they always say, when it's like when when someone in a book says that they've white made it more white or they got rid of the black, it's just yeah, we got rid of the, uh, some of the funk by accident. That's you know that is on us. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Where's the funk? Oh, left it back. Left it back at the house. But here's left it what, back in Africa. My bad. <laughs> here's what we've got instead. But so let's talk about left field a little bit because these guys were big. These guys were big enough. I could remember seeing that CD at people's houses. I never actually investigated or played it, but when I when I heard it, when I went back and listened for this episode, I definitely recognized some of this stuff. But um, again, much like the trip hop crew, these guys have roots. Uh, Paul Daly of Left Field was in uh, a punk band called The Rivals in the late 70s. He was a session drummer. He played with the band New Heavies, brand New Heavies and Primal Scream. Uh, he was even in the acid jazz combo, A Man Called Out, Adam, the one group that we called out as kind of the actual EDM branch of acid jazz, unlike, you know, a lot of the a lot of the acid jazz acts were just bands that were kind of trend jumping with the acid term. But A Man Called Adam was actually electronic music and he partnered up with neil barnes who was an ex uh london hip-hop dj he dj'd at the wag club back in the 80s they formed in 89 1990 they put out their first singles on rhythm king 
it was just Barnes solo, but he had daily do remixes. Um, so not forgotten more than I know came out on rhythm King records. And then they were in a legal limbo as is so often the case, the, the, love affair with their first uh, label. They got married too soon and had to sue, sue Rhythm King. So for not quite a year, I want to say, they couldn't perform or record under their own name, so they did remixes for acts like React to Rhythm, Super Real, Inner City, and even David Bowie. And then 1992 released the pressure on their own Hard Hands label, the first Barnes Daily co-write. They are now officially a group and featured reggae singer Earl 16 on vocals. This trick of bringing in a celebrity vocalist uh, is one they go back to. They bring in John Lydon, Johnny Rotten himself, for 1993's Open Up uh, single, which made number 13 on the UK pop charts. And um, then they put out the Leftism album on Columbia Records in 1995. It um, uh, Again, more celebrity vocalists, a couple of reggae singers come, come in. They have the John Lydon track. They've got their old 16 track. And Tony Holiday of Curve came in for a track. So... Um, that didn't quite go gold. I think it went gold in Britain, around 200,000 units. So made an impact. Any yeah, thoughts that's on the that one field? with the uh, that's the one with the uh, the the shark jaws on the front, and everybody had that. I had that, and I loved it. And I remember when we were talking about this episode coming into it, you were saying, "I was always trying to figure out what left field was, and finally I can put them into this progressive genre." And at first, I was really upset about it, but uh, you know, <laughs> I did some research into it, and the whole thing was is I I listen listen to left field mainly just through their albums. Uh, but when you go into their singles, like uh, Not Forgotten, Not Forgotten is largely credited as the first progressive house track. And when you listen to it, you say, OK, that that makes some sense. And then they have a couple of other tracks that are uh, that are that are similar, where the album cut sounds more like maybe kind of a, a reggae uh, or a dub electronica track. But then they've got Song of Life. They have an extended version of that that really puts together all of the elements of what makes a progressive house track a progressive house track. And it all starts to make a lot more sense. So they weren't just a member of the movement. They were the president. That's that's a, an old hair club for men joke. Anyway, so yeah, so Left Field, um, I was totally glad to, to find out more about him. Uh, and digging up that album, which I had totally seen, that cover, like you mentioned, with was was iconic and there weren't many iconic album covers in the cd era but that was one that definitely caught your eye and really got your notice and the next group i have to talk about and this is the one underworld that i've been hearing the name i'd heard of them at the time back when i didn't pay any attention to this stuff and didn't really know what was what at all and then kept they kept coming up in the big beat chapter they toured with the chemical brothers or rather the chemical brothers toured with them they were a pretty big time act, and so, like I said, I tried to wedge them in the the Big Beat chapter, and and was very happy when we started this one. And I figured out, aha, here's where they belong. And so, pretty another. It's not an unusual history. It's very similar to Left Field. It's two guys from Wales, Cardiff, Wales, uh, Carl Hyde and Rick Smith, who had been working it since 1979. First, they were in a, a reggae. Uh, they were in a group called Screen Gems with a Z. That was an attempt to combine reggae and craft work. So they're already kind of on the electronic music tip. Their next band, Freer, or how do you, any idea how to pronounce that one? F. No idea. I'll let you hang yourself on that one. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate that. Every every Brit listening to this is having a good laugh. Well, enjoy yourselves. Freer it was a synth pop band, signed with CBS, made two albums. One of them came out in 1983. The other one was Lost in Record Company Limbo. 
then they they put together Underworld, and it's kind of like Deep Purple, the the dinosaur rock band, where they have Underworld Mark One, and that was the version that was a full band that had two albums on Sire, came out in '88 and '89, had some U.S. chart success, and in fact were so successful they toured the U.S. and broke up after a U.S. tour because Carl Hyde went off to work with Prince. Uh, in Paisley Park, and he ended up touring with um, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein, formerly with Blondie. So he goes off to do bigger and better things in the States or stays stays back to do bigger and better things in the States. Meanwhile, Rick Smith hooks up with this DJ Darren Emerson and gets hip to the whole Acid House Revolution thing that's happening and puts together a group, brings back Carl Hyde. They sign with Junior Boyzone, which a, a record label from the Boyzone fans, fanzine family. And um, we talked about them in the Big Beat chapter quite a bit. Uh, again, hence my confusion with Big Beat. They had uh, some initial releases as Lemon, Lemon Interrupt and Steppenraiser, went back to the Underworld title, and then um, put out their album Dub No Bass with My Headman on, with my headman on Junior Boyzone in 1994. Their second album was the classic second toughest in the infants meaning i guess they were the second toughest kid in the infants meaning the preschool what americans would call preschool that came out in 1996 i'm rushing because stephanie wants to get me to get to the sponsor break but let me finish i want to mention the born slippy dot track which was fe- featured in train spotting which i absolutely heard and saw and had the soundtrack album too so i was more familiar with underworld than i wanted to admit but now let's hear a brief Word from our sponsor, and we'll let Ryan tell us about Underworld when we come back. And so, Ryan, what's your take on Underworld? Because I know for me, my experience of them was the music and train spotting that seemed very new and way ahead of anything I'd heard at the time. But if you were in Britain or on the club scene, I'm guessing Born Slippy was not cutting edge. Well, it was still a, a bit of a of a clubbing clubbing revelation. It was a massive hit, and I feel like kind of before that they had a reputation for being kind of more like almost like uh, beatnik slam poets with with a lot of their stuff. And uh, you know, their 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 albums would come out, and they would have some gems on them, but you know, maybe overlooked by the average person because. Uh, they're surrounded by all this really weird free form stream of consciousness lyricism that goes over it. But then you have, uh, you know, Born Slippy being put uh, front and center in train spotting soundtrack. And you have a couple of their other tracks being kind of elevated and put into other movies. And they start to develop this real, uh, you know, societal uh, cachet that they can that they can build off of like Underworld is, is a, one of those groups that that that, you know, was was considered cream of the crop top on all of the tours and everything else like that, both in the UK and in America, just because of, because of those hips hits because of uh, dark and long, because of born slippy because of cowgirl. And uh, so they had those individual tracks that, that are just such massive monster hits that it kind of let them get away with a, a, a kind of a very, a very artsy weird uh, album existence. Yeah, and I think it was Carl Hyde that was the one that was the lyricist and would do some really interesting things with eavesdropping on people on buses and writing down what they were saying and then chopping up the conversations and repasting the lyrics and just all kinds of sort of avant-garde lyricism, which is very unusual in this whole EDM journey. Not a lot of notable lyricists 
um, in EDM. And I'm sure Reynolds, that's probably part of the reason Reynolds ignored him because <laughs> it wasn't the story he wanted to tell. And and uh, and Reynolds does stick to his guns. He's basically like, I, I still love that this book was a polemic, that I was all in for hardcore breakbeat. And I was, you know, and he was very happy when it evolved into jungle and drum and bass. And he felt like he had won. But then towards the end, he's kind of having to hedge his bets and admit that Progressive House and Deep House had some future successes too. And we'll get to that in the Speed Garage and UK Garage chapters because they're totally going to take over from Jungle. So kind of had to engage in some revisionism. But it's not just bands at this point. There's also the whole superstar DJs phenomenon. And Reynolds has mentioned DJ Sasha, a.k.a. Alexander Paul Coe, multiple times. But never really focused on him. And that's one of the things I feel like Brewster and Broughton, if they had written about this era at length, they did write about this era, but just in a couple chapters of a much longer work, I feel like they would have made people like DJ Sasha much more central to their story. But DJ Sasha is a little different than the previous generation of club DJs. Tell us what it meant to be a superstar DJ in the 90s. Uh, well, I mean, the whole phenomenon with Sasha and Digweed was they and, and how they carried Prague into the mainstream was, uh, you know, Mixmag came out and, and basically coined the term progressive to talk about what these guys were doing in the north of England, uh, DJing this new sound. And I will admit, you know, uh, it's it's not trance. It's not techno. It's not house. It's kind of some kind of weird amalgamation of something else. And that's kind of what progressive just kind of got labeled as it, it turned into something else eventually. But what Sasha and Digweed were doing was they were playing, uh, you know, what we were talking about before about how it's not, it's cooler than what you'd consider normal trance. Lots of guys weren't even our progressive house to a certain degree embodied or held a lot of the trance guys because they didn't even want to have the word trance in their name, even as progressive trance, but that's what it was. Uh, but anyways, Mixmag pushed, the, the the term progressive, they pushed Sasha and Digweight and they pushed like a whole bunch of these other guys that were kind of carrying the sound. And, and it and it became this whole self-fulfilling uh wheel where where these guys were kind of out and playing and getting some getting some popularity. And because they were appearing so much in all of the DJ magazines and everything else like that, more people were coming out to see what this fuss is all about. And it becomes this uh, this sound that you can't escape in the UK and all the way over in Canada, not so much in America, they're progressive. You know, they, America's more house was always, was always more house. They didn't get onto Prague like, like the other places did, but it, it basically kind of took over. And I think a big part of that was because, uh, you know, the press threw all in on progressive because it was more serious and it was, it was less stupid. Yeah. I, I mean, EDM at this ju juncture, just didn't have a, a presence as pop music in the States. So it makes sense that the sort of most pop aspects of it just aren't happening in the States at all. EDM was still an underground sound. Um, but I do want to give a little bit of the history. Uh, Sasha started out at Manchester's Hacienda Storied Club. We talked about quite a bit in the Manchester episode and previously. Then he moved to Shelley's Laser Dome in Stoke-on-Trent. He was featured on the first uh, cover of Mix Mag uh, and really worshipped sort of as a idolized is the word he was he was idolized as as a god king by many people a lot of people having their first e experience like zeroed in on him partners with john digweed in 1994 and i was aware of these compilations albums they put out i think it was 
the first one they did was Renaissance the Mix collection in 1994, which I wasn't aware of, but I do remember seeing Northern Exposure. A woman I worked with um, around 97 had that album. It came out in 96. Tell us about this whole Northern Exposure series and these, how does a DJ make a CD? What's going on here? Oh, I mean, just as far as uh, mix CD goes, uh, the mix CD is the most obvious format for a DJ to kind of, uh, you know, put out and exist in. All of these DJs back back when the labels were trying to figure it out, you know, getting ATB and Paul Van Dyke to put out artist albums, it was just stupid. Like, mix CDs are the way to go. People want something that's representative of the experience they're having in the club. It makes sense for Renaissance to put out a three-CD mix collection in 1994 that has all of the sounds of what you'd hear at their club mixed by their their most famous DJ. And that's why the Renaissance CDs are everywhere. Northern Exposure is Sasha and Digweed at their at their at their kind of starting point and to me when you listen to that it's it's hard this is where people argue about progressive as a term and you say well this is just trance and the only reason it's not trance is because people don't want to admit that it's trance but it uh, is it more progressive than club trance yes but it's still trance so it's just kind of an interesting thing that that's been going on for for years because of the progressive term. Is it is it serious? Can you drink to it in a club and and nod your head thoughtfully that it's progressive and you get rid of get rid of <laughs> the house moniker, get rid of the trance label, progressive. All right, and and this whole notion of a DJ putting together an album based on the set he played, where each track is by other artists, but it, it's got the mixing tricks that the DJ employed to blend things together and, and and some of the things to modify the sound. This is stuff that DJ, disco DJs, were trying to do back into the 70s. In the Brewster and Broughton unit, we talked about that, that there was a club owner, and I'm blanking on his name, in New York in the 70s, who wanted to sell tracks of here's what our DJs are playing. Here's how they're mixing them. Let's print this up as an album contacts, the publishers and the record companies. I want to license these songs and do this. Everybody shuts them down. 20 years later, the record industry finally figures out, Oh, here's how we can make money off of DJs, you know? So a classic example of the record industry, just totally being behind the times and, and, um, retarding the progress of the whole thing holding back the business nobody you know missed massive missed opportunities imagine if frankie knuckles and ron hardy and people like that larry levin had been able to make albums of their mixes that stuff would have sold and it would have been a win for everybody but yeah not only was it not happening uh like officially through the labels for a while but the labels were actively trying to destroy mixtape culture in the underground which is where you got you know, uh, your Frankie Knuckles mixes or where you got your early, any, uh, any, any rave, you'd always be getting, it was my favorite time. You wouldn't just get a flyer coming out the door. Someone would hand you a cassette tape or a, or a C or a blank CD that was something burned. And that was, that was great being able to go home from, from, uh, from a weekend of partying with like six new CDs and three new cassette tapes. Awesome. But let's hear our next track. This is Left Field's Song of Life, the extended version from 1992. Why did you pick this one? Well, again, if you're familiar with Leftism, the album, then this is a very different version. Uh, very, I mean, it's obvious that it's the same song, but it's it's very much made for for that progressive club vibe, and it basically perfected uh, the, the all uh, kind of hit all the notes that that progressive music was trying to hit right around that 1995 period. All right, Left Field, Song of Life, the extended version from 1992. Not 1995. So, ha, got to correct it. Anyway, left field, song of life. 
And that was Left Field's Song of Life, the extended version, not the album version. And were your notes right that it was 1992 or what you said? Was it 92 or 95? I don't know. 92, if I, it was when it came out, but it still, it still like kind of held, held sway for what the sound was like around 95. Cool. And the album came out after that as well. Yeah, 97 is when the album came out. Yeah, yeah. So cool. And so Reynolds, another quote from Reynolds I have to drop in here that he says, by 1997, progressive house meant no nonsense pumping house for regular heterosexual blokes. So <laughs> that's that's what this stuff for. And and how is this different from happy hardcore? Uh like I mean, happy hardcore is obviously for people who don't care how cool or uncool something is for, for people who, who want to dance for, you know, five hours or, you know, two hours and just sweat all their sweat out. And progressive house was, was meant to fill up, uh, super clubs and, uh, and kind of have, have that, have that cachet as being sophisticated and, uh, and, and groovy and, and, and just socially more acceptable than a lot of the underground uh, varieties of, of dance music. Cool. And musically happy hardcore would have break break beats, right? And this stuff would not have as much, uh, you know, uh, but up to 95, yeah, there's break beats. And after 95, there was the new, uh, UK happy hardcore sound that was more four, four based. So it was just, you know, about 180 beats per minute, four, four beats and, wow. uh, still the same chipmunk vocals and, and ridiculousness and piano riffs and <laughs> cool. Well, let's get to another celebrity that even I was aware of in the 90s. And I'm talking about Richard Melville Hall, a.k.a. Moby. Um, originally a punk musician, moves to New York from the, uh, the New England in 1989, became a DJ, uh, finds time to play guitar for Ultra Vivid Scene. Then, um, But he's becoming a DJ, has his track Go from 1991, goes top 10 UK. Uh, it sampled Laura Palmer's theme from Twin Peaks. Um, so in that way, it's almost kind of a novelty track. It's kind of funny how some of uh, Moby's biggest hits were, were were kind of novelty, or or the the, mo- the song that I picked to to talk about with Moby was "Move," which is a, a pure you know handbag diva house track. And we will hear it in just a few minutes. But give us a little background because Moby is somebody like by the end of the of the century becomes the biggest electronica star which is what they were branding at the time in the world um but even before then he's touring the states 92 he tours the states opening up for the shaman 93 tours the u.s opening up for the project or he he's a headliner and the prodigy and richie houghton uh are opening up for him are the movie p on electra so he's on electra records as early as 1993 the single move that we're going to hear in a minute goes to number one dance in the U.S. It's top 20 U.K. pop. Um, wait, wait, I'm wrong. He he opened for the Prodigy and Richie Houghton, but later in 93, he headlines over Orbital and Aphex Twin, Richard James. Um, has Everything is Wrong, 1995, top 25 U.K. album. He's on Lollapalooza in 1996. That's the big alternative rock tour that starts in 1991, originally headlined by Jane's Addiction. Second year has Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and kind of inaugurates grunge. Is is you know Lollap- and and had tons of hip hop acts, Ice T, Ice Cube, other people. So Lollapalooza was kind of a 
you know, even had metal bands in there. It was kind of any anything to the left of mainstream rock in America is on the Lollapalooza tour at one time or another. And Moby, I guess, is the official entree of uh, this electronic dance revolution that's been going on everywhere else for 10 years at this point, finally makes it into the alternative mainstream in the States in 96. Um, but give us the general sort of background on Moby. Like, how the heck did he fit into the scene? How did he come out of New York? I guess he was just like D- other DJs that we've been talking about through this whole thing that are coming out of New York and s- sending their records to England and getting an audience that way. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you got to understand how big of a track Go was. Uh, Go is massive and uh, it's featured in a whole bunch of movies. Every, every uh, Almost all the 90s movies uh, about rave music usually have Go in them. And then Move was, again, like a massive number one hit in the U.S. So Moby's one of these guys that has these these hits that you could just ride your whole career off of. And, you know, but he he was kind of constantly releasing albums. Basically, uh, after he left Instinct, um, Instinct Records was just kind of taking all of his his bedroom dance music hits that they or dance music songs that he had kind of written and and given them and, and just kind of uh, they, they had like a, a pile of them and they were just kind of releasing them and selling them in, in Europe. But after that, once he kind of got onto his own, was allowed to do what he wanted to do. He was making these kind of weird they did albums that didn't really fit like every everything is wrong that album it it did it did well based off of name value but it was a very uneven weird album with a lot of influences and then he writes a punk album um, animal rights yeah and that just confused everybody and pissed everybody off it almost cost him his his position as as somebody in, in you know that you could put on top of a rave flyer because at a certain point when you when you thumb your nose at the scene that you're supposed to be the champion of people start to take offense, but, uh, he was really riding off of, off of those, those massive big dance hits that he had that, that were, you know, go is, uh, almost a breakbeat hardcore track. Next is the E is, is straight up breakbeat hardcore and, and move is, is, uh, diva house. So he, he hit a lot of those commercial notes, uh, you know, in between doing what he wanted to do, which I, I got a lot of respect for, uh, to, you know, the thing that's kind of interesting, we talked about Moby a bit and why he didn't fit into the America chapter and and from this book. And, and one thing I got to say is that you can look at America, the rave, you can look at the rave scene in America in a hundred different ways and focus on a hundred different people and have a hundred different stories that you can tell. But for Moby, the reason I feel like he's kind of understated in, in that chapter is that Moby kind of did what Moby does. Moby wasn't so much... Uh, doing some doing things for the scene kind of like when we were talking about jungle and guys like four hero who would have almost a, a community center vibe to their studio where anybody could come in smith and mighty as well like these are guys you know bristol is on the map because smith and mighty opened up their their studio and all the important artists went through there and got an education and got uh, mentoring and got help through and while moby's a collaborator He's not as much of a mentor. There's not like a hundred different people who came out saying, you know, Moby was the one that that took me and 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 dusted me off, fixed me up, and put me out to the world. So Moby was kind of doing his own thing, uh, right up until he did the Area One series of raves that he organized himself in 2001. Like other than that, like one of his tours, Aphex Twin, kind of slagged him off the whole time for being such an insular. Uh, aloof individual who didn't want to have anything to do with any of the other acts. Yeah, and when we talk about Michelangelo Matos's underground is massive, 
Moby's going to kind of emerge as the Chevy Chase of the scene. <laughs> like the, there's a lot of hate directed Moby's way, and he's still catching it. I can't remember what celebrity he recently claimed to have nearly had an affair with or something, and then only to get just utterly slagged uh, when she put out her version of events. But that's Moby. Let's go ahead and hear his track "Move." And and you already covered why you picked this one, right? Or do you need to? Yeah, no, it's D, you know, for, for all of his pretensions, uh, this is pure diva house, which is, you know, handbag to the extreme. All right, Moby, move. And that was Move by Moby from uh, the mid-90s, 93. In fact, yeah, Deep House all the way. I do want to mention now that Instinct Records fight, one of the nastiest record label fights this side of Frank Sinatra versus Capitol Records. I mean, they did everything possible to make things unpleasant for him and to make as much money off of him as they could uh, after uh, their relationship had broken down. So, yeah, a little sympathy for Moby for having to deal with that. But... It's hard to feel sorry for the guy who put out Play in 1999, which sold 10 million copies. I believe it was, I think there was a law, the put Moby in every television ad made in 1999. I can't remember who passed that, but that seemed to be the effect because he was in every TV commercial that happened for like three years. He was on films, TV shows. That Play album, you've heard it. If if you lived in the turn of the millennium era, you had to hear that whether you wanted to or not. Um, I didn't even have the heart to go back and listen to the album in full, which I don't think I've ever done, just because so much PTSD from all the memories of... I remember hearing that on 9-11 vividly all day as as the we were watching the planes crash into the buildings and people jump into their tests and here's another ad featuring moby you know coming on every five minutes so uh, anyway so a bit of ptsd for you for your americans yes yes uh so uh but you know i don't know thoughts on play worth it here uh, i love it uh I, I i i was early on the play bandwagon just by happenstance it was like during during the time when I was just going to HMV and buying all the CDs I could, ripping them on my computer and then returning them the next day. So, I, you know, Play came out and I got it when it came out. And I, I was blown away because it was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. You know, uh, Moby had gone back and found a whole bunch of really interesting, uh, you know, source samples of, of, of uh, you know, black folk music from the 1920s. And it made for a very uh, compelling listen. And also... Low royalty payments, I'm pretty sure. So, <laughs> on Moby's part, but uh, yeah, what I don't know, I actually don't know the licensing details on that. So I will go back. Uh, we'll go back and give that a, a full listen. And it was definitely him deliberately trying to recover from the animal rights fiasco. I can remember being in a record store in the '90s, and a whole bunch of punk rockers were playing that record and just rolling on the floor laughing. And I remember at the time thinking, "This isn't that terrible. What's the big deal?" And I 
didn't really understand the whole context of who Moby was and why it was so funny. It was perceived as so funny for him to go punk. And that, that's another one I haven't gone back and listened to, but now I'm kind of tempted to, to see how it uh, holds up. Yeah. If it functions at all as credible punk, any opinions on that one? Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't, I only remember kind of browsing over it once, like uh, many years ago. It's just, it's just not in my wheelhouse whatsoever. I have no, no way to draw any kind of comparison to anything else because, uh, you know, other than pop punk, I don't really listen to punk. So I got nothing to compare it to and no reason to kind of go and check it out. So even before this episode, I was kind of like, should I, uh, now <laughs> it is, I must say, a very punk move to try to alienate your audience, which he succeeded at doing. I mean, Black Flag built their whole career on alienating their audience and has continued to alienate everybody they ever worked with as the mountain of lawsuits against Greg Ginn and by Greg Ginn and SST Records have illustrated. But before we go, I want to cover French House, a.k.a. French Touch, largely because Daft Punk who much later on in another lifetime is going to be the act that breaks electronic music big in America in the 2000s. But first, they're this odd little French group called Darlin, uh, just an indie indie rock band uh, circa 1992. And they get their name because somebody reviews their band and calls it Daft Punky Thrash. So how did an indie rock band from France evolve into Daft Punk What's the context? What's the scene? What's French touch? Well, you got to figure both the guys from Daft Punk are obviously very musically uh, educated. And, uh, you know, I I don't know too much about their indie rocker days, but but basically from 1995 onwards, Thomas Bangalter has a a little label called Roulet, which basically creates Filter House. And I made a mistake back in the uh, America the Rave chapter when we were talking about uh, Daft Punk coming over to America. And I, I referenced into the fact that Filter House was really big in America, and that's why they brought Daft Punk over. But they brought – Daft Punk basically created Filter House. Like nothing nothing predates Roulet. All the stuff that I had been listening to thinking it was pre-Daft Punk was actually older than Roulet. So I got to give Th- Thomas Bangalter all the credit for for having this – this this strange little label that kind of you mean started, younger than Roulet? You uh, yeah, nothing was yeah. younger than Roulet. Roulet was 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 the start okay. of uh, Roulet. Of very, yeah, so okay. so Filter House is basically you take a, a disco sample, be it you know an entire b- b- bar, four bars, or you know just two two notes, and just looping it and looping it, looping it, throwing a filter on over it, and going up and down with the filter for like seven minutes. Perfect example: Stardust. Uh, uh, music sounds better with you. That's that's Filter House through and through. And Filter House, as it went on in time, more and more French DJs were taking their own spin on it that it became known as French Touch. Because if you try to Google Filter House, you get nothing but filters for your for your house air conditioning unit. <laughs> so they needed they needed something better for the for the Google's people. I see, I see. I've I've known some bands from the '90s that turns out they were bad. They weren't thinking ahead and didn't know what Google was going to do. So, and we need to mention the other member of Daft Punk. Can you pronounce his name? Guy Manuel de Omenem Cristo. Thank you. And he and Thomas Bangalter uh, form uh, Daft Punk. They meet Stuart McMillan of the Scots group Slam, who's the co-founder of the label Soma Quality Recordings at a rave at Euro Disney. How cool is that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and Slam is one of those proto techno UK techno uh, groups. So, so Slam is a really good granddaddy to go and meet and 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 work with and learn from. 
and and they gave him a demo tape right there immediately hook up they put out defunk uh, their first successful single in 1995. They played an even further event in Wisconsin in 1996, which Reynolds attended. And we talked about the America Rave chapter again. Uh, and and thanks for coming clean on that um, mistake you'd made, because uh, I'm sure I was going to catch it and correct you. But anyway, then they put out homework on Virgin Records in 1997 and just continue their ascent uh, into the stratosphere. And what was it, 2006 that they played Coachella? To such dramatic effect? Ah, I think it was 2006. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, I thought you said 19. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That's yeah. my, don't don't mind my brain tumor. That's that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, yeah. Someday I'll tell you about the time I made an aneurysm joke when my co-host had suffered an aneurysm on a show. But anyway, that's. Oh God, did I just do that too? <laughs> yes. Oh God. Yeah, that's that's an old Al Franken. Uh, uh, brain tumors aren't funny. Al, uh, that Saturday Night Live lose learned that lesson very litigiously in the 70s. Anyway. But so, yeah, Daft Punk, um, I don't think anybody in the 90s would have predicted that they would be the group to break EDM big in the States. Yeah, well, I mean, even even Defunk was was really strange because I remember when the video came out, it's very confusing and it has a dog and they don't even really let the music sit on top of the video. It's all about this this guy in a weird dog costume wandering around New York City. I remember seeing it and being completely baffled by it. And it was very, very, very odd. And then Around the World came out, and that was a big hit. And all of a sudden, it started to make sense. And I think Around the World, I, the funk was, was that you know one of those tracks that that comes out, and the album's kind of, okay, now we're going to do an album. And then Around the World was the single that kind of came with the album that woke everybody up. And so Homework sold, sold big, and it had a lot of oomph on it because it had the label behind it at a time when you know the label can get your album onto all of the music stations, all of the radio stations, uh, the music video is playing everywhere. So they immediately kind of jumped, jumped right into that, that top tier electronica act, uh, zone just, just by the, the, the sheer muscle that was put behind them. And rightfully so they had a, they had a lot of cachet. I mean, the word of the episode is cachet. They had a, they had a lot of pop, uh, a lot of hype, coming in behind them because again, filter house is great and they'd be in the champions of filter house. So this was this crazy new sound that was kind of, uh, germinating in France and they were the guys behind it. So. Cool. And we'll talk more about their rise to success in some of Reynolds later chapters, including the special secret chapter. That's not in our edition of the book, but that he was kind enough to mail us a copy of that's from even newer editions than the 2012 version we're talking about. And so that's, our cover of House in the 90s, all the way from Deep House through Handbag House, Hardbag House, Progressive House, and into French Touch with a side trip into Moby and Band, uh, what, what do you call it? Band House, I think is what he called the left field underworld movement. And so next week we'll be back to talk about Speed Garage. And do we want to go ahead and combine Speed Garage and UK Garage and Two Step or treat Speed Garage to its own chapter? No, We've we can. I think we can. Standards. I think we can. I think we can do all three of those things. Okay. So next week, should we do trance first and then go back and catch Speed Garage? Hundred percent up to you. I'm. I'm happy doing both. I'm ready. Okay. Well, so next week we'll do trance, and then we'll come back and do Speed Garage, UK Garage, and Two Steps. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash: A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture. Although this week was one of the episodes where we had to draw on other sources. So thanks, Ryan. Thank you.
follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to talk about the global spread of trance in the later 1990s, from Goa to Berlin to Tel Aviv and South America. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.